men. Our scripture text this morning comes from uh, the book of Acts, the second half of Luke's gospel account. This is the Acts of the Apostles in the church, uh, Acts chapter 2. Uh, verses 29 through the end of the chapter at verse 47. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about how the resurrection, about the resurrection of the Christ, that he would it was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other our excuse me, and with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added to that day about three thousand souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh Lord, um, many of us come uh, to you today um, and to your word today as people who, as Matt uh, said earlier, are um, excited uh, excited about the season that we are in, excited about the new year to come. Uh, many have had maybe some of the best years of their lives with um, impending weddings and new marriages and uh, the, the hope of, of children and having their first children and new jobs, uh, new visions for life, um, recovery from long-term sickness. But Lord, we know that many uh, may have experienced uh, some of the worst times this year, um, losing uh, jobs, uh, losing loved ones, uh, marital issues, um, infertility, uh, cancer, addiction, loneliness. Uh, but Lord, our hope is that 
we know that from your hand comes good and perfect gifts. And from that same hand, you comfort uh, those who are downcast, those who are filled with sorrow, those who are sick. Uh, You bind up the brokenhearted, the wounded, uh, and you comfort them. You draw them to yourself. And so, Lord, we cast all our cares before you this morning. Uh, Wherever we are, uh, whatever we may be doing, uh, whoever we are with, uh, whatever we're going through, uh, Lord, we put it all before you because we know uh, that you don't just give us better things than what we have, uh, but you give us the best things um, because it comes from you and you comfort us because you love us. So, Lord, we dedicate this time to you and our lives to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, this past year, a few months ago, I got to, uh, to spend some time in conversation with someone from the world of publishing. Um, it, was a, it was a great conversation. Um, I, I asked this person, I said, what is really the hot genre of uh, books right now? Uh, and I'm thinking he's going to say uh, something along the lines of illustrated children's literature uh, or some sort of fantasy fiction about mythic quests and uh, bejeweled amulets and dark wizards and dragons. Uh, but he said it's, uh, it's self-help, and it's actually been that way for, for quite a while. About 30-plus years, you've seen this dramatic increase in the number of self-help books being published and consumed. People just can't get enough of it. And there's plenty of terrible material out there, right? And there's some good stuff, too. Uh, but I'm not talking about uh, books like Auto Repair for Dummies, uh, but books that focus on the inner life of human beings, the heart and, uh, and the mind. Uh, maybe a name that you've heard of sort of in our cultural moment that's been tossed around is Jordan Peterson. He wrote a book called 12 Rules for Life, and then more recently, 12 More Rules uh, for Life. Another author uh, who's written some good stuff on courage and vulnerability is Brene Brown. Um, but no matter who the author is, no matter what the, the book tries to uh, encapsulate and what advice they try to give, all self-help books have at least two things in common. Uh, there are two realities that they all highlight. And the first is that life is full of complexity. Um, yes, we experience love and joy and friendship and vocation uh, and some flourishing, but we also experience difficulty and Uh, sorrow and pain and uh, broken relationships and sickness and death and fear. The decisions we make are often uh, accompanied by a lot of anxiety. Uh, Life is difficult to process. I I saw someone just a couple of weeks ago uh, this Christmas season who I hadn't seen in a number of months, and I said, hey, how's your 2021 wrapping up? He's like, man, I'm still trying to process 2020. Life is full of complexity. But the second reality that these books highlight is that you need help. I need help. Uh, Even even a a book that would say, um, don't listen to any narrative outside yourself. Only listen to your your inner voice speaking your truth uh, to you. Uh, The reality is that you had to go out and seek advice outside of yourself because you need help. Marie Kondo is not necessarily a, an author that we would normally associate with self-help, 
Um, she is uh, an organizing consultant. She wrote the book, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. Uh, she tries to help people save space in their dressers and closets and around their home. She talks a lot about uh, domestic minimalism. But everything that she speaks of is really rooted in the inner life. She talks a lot about joy and only keep things that fill you up, that give you that sense of joy and rest, that help you flourish emotionally and, and psychologically. But she says this. She said, uh, the question of what you want to own... In other words, the question of what you think that you need is a question of how to live your life. Now, what does any of that have to do with our passage in Acts 2? Well, by the time we get to Acts 2, uh, Jesus has died. Uh, he's risen from the dead. Uh, he has spent about six weeks with his disciples teaching and preaching and eating with them. Uh, and then before he ascends into heaven, he gives them uh, this last word, this great commission, where he sends them out into all corners of the earth uh, to proclaim the good news of his gospel, that his kingdom had come, uh, that he is calling all peoples to himself to find true rest in him, true rest for wearied souls, uh, that they can find forgiveness from their sins. They can find joy and peace in him alone. And now Peter, having been sent out by Jesus and the church being established in the name of Jesus, Peter in Acts 2 is delivering the very first sermon of the church. So what do you think Peter is going to talk about? He's going to talk about our need for Jesus. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning, our need for Jesus. We're going to look at three elements of our need for Jesus that Peter speaks of in this sermon. First, our need for the truth of Jesus. Second, our need for a heart transformed by Jesus. And third, our need for the church of Jesus. So first, we need the truth of Jesus. Why? Well, if the Bible is not true and um, Jesus didn't do what he said that he did, uh, and he is buried somewhere in, in Palestine right now, then we need to start looking at tea times for next Sunday morning. Because none of this matters. It, it, it's all a joke, right? But when we encounter the Jesus of the Bible, we have to do something with them. As C.S. Lewis said, we either have to proclaim that he's a liar or a lunatic or that he's actually Lord. But if Jesus is a living and reigning Lord, if he is Lord in Christ, like Peter says, then it gives us real hope. It gives us real hope. And that's what Peter is inviting us to see in these first few verses of our text. Just before this passage, Peter's been walking through the Old Testament prophecies about the coming Messiah and connecting them to Jesus, saying that it's through the, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that he has fulfilled all of the promises of God to us in Scripture. And then, here in our, the very first few verses of our passage, Peter throws down the hammer, right? He, he throws the, the Mike Tyson left hook, the finishing blow, where he says, look, y'all talk a lot about David, right? You, you talk a big game about David, and rightly so. Um, man after God's own heart, a great patriarch of the Jewish faith, right? God hand-selected him. He anointed him to be king of Israel, and then God establishes the, his covenant with David, 
uh, that there would be one coming in the Messiah that would sit on his throne forever, and that through that man that God would draw all peoples to himself, that he would save a people uh, from their sin. That is the great and awesome and wise and powerful David. Uh, But that David, that dude is in the ground. He's dead. David didn't rise from the dead. David didn't ascend into heaven. Jesus did. And guess what? David was pointing to Jesus. And then Peter goes on and says that the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, y'all have witnessed, and it's been witnessed by hundreds of people. And here's what that means. That means that Jesus is God in the flesh who came to save people from their sin. That is the wondrous beauty about the gospel. Dorothy Sayers, who is a mystery writer and theologian, she said that it's the dogma that is the drama of the Christian life. The truth that the same God who made the world both lived in the world and passed through the grave and gate of death. Show that to the heathen, and they may not believe it, but at least they may realize that here is something that a man might be glad to believe in. But not everyone uh, believes that we need saving, right? Um, There are many people that believe that humanity is inherently good. And so if man is inherently good, uh, then you don't need to be redeemed from anything. You don't need to be saved from anything. You don't need Jesus. Uh, I am a sucker for good satire. uh, And this past week, I was uh, finding myself reading articles on The Onion a satirical, true fake news website. Uh, and uh, just in time for Christmas, I saw the, uh, this article. Here, here's how the article starts. It says, citing the film's problematic portrayal of humanity as inherently good and capable of redemption, Turner Classic Movies announced it would no longer be airing Miracle on 34th Street due to the film's outdated depictions of hope and joy. And I just thought, man, it's like, that is so funny. Um, and they almost get there. They almost get to the truth, but, but not quite. Uh, because people that believe that humanity is inherently good, they also tend to believe uh, that truth is subjective, that it's relative, that the meaning of life is to simply live out your truth as you see fit, to, um, to try to be as good as you can, uh, to be free to yourself, Uh, But the gospel says something the opposite. The gospel says you're actually a rebel against God and therefore his enemy. And you can be forgiven and embraced by God through Jesus alone. You're his enemy and you can be forgiven. You see, Jesus didn't just come to put people in a position to be redeemable. He didn't come to make people redeemable. He came and actually did redeem sinners. He came to redeem people, as Peter says here, um, the very people who crucified him, who put him on the cross. And what Peter's trying to drive home to us is that the hope and joy of the gospel is that Jesus redeemed people like us in the flesh, in space, in time, in history. It really happened. Dorothy Sayers continues. She says, God can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole human experience. 
from the trivial irritations of family life, the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money, to the worst horrors of pain, humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He was born in poverty and died in disgrace and thought it well worthwhile. See, other religions say that you have to do a lot of things uh, to try to merit or attain God's favor and to have access to relationship with him. But what have we celebrated this entire Christmas season? This is the season of Advent, that God has come, right? God came down, Emmanuel, God dwells with us. Our God condescended and became like one of us in every single way in the flesh. And what that does is it opens up a new vision of life for us, that we can start to see everything differently through that new lens. I don't know if you've seen these uh, videos on YouTube where uh, people who are colorblind uh, are given these gifts by friends or family members uh, where they can put on these lenses and they can start to see true color. Uh, but I saw one a couple of weeks ago uh, where a middle-aged man was having a birthday party. His friends and family gathered, and they're holding balloons and signs, and they give him this box and has these, uh, these glasses in it, and he puts it on, and he just starts freaking out. Like, what, is, what color is that? Is that, is that blue? Is, is that red? I didn't know orange was that color. And he, just, he doesn't know what to do with it, what he's seeing, and his... His friends and his family are starting pointing to things around the room and balloons and shirts and shoes and saying, can you see it? Can you see that? Can you see that? And he starts to weep and says, I can see it. I can see everything. And that reminded me of what C.S. Lewis said when, when he said, I believe in Christianity as I believe in the sun has risen. Not that only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. You see, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in the flesh, what it does is it proclaims to us that Jesus cares about us. Jesus loves us, that God has come close to us. It means that, that he understands me and he wants to understand me. That he cares about all of my life because he, he can sympathize with me as a human being. He's experienced the pain and the sorrow. He's experienced death. And if Jesus came to defeat pain and suffering and sin forever in the flesh, then that means that I have a place to put my needs. I have a place to put all the difficulty that I experience. I have a place to put all the suffering that I go through. I have a place for all the pain, for all the cancer diagnoses. I have a place for all the infertility issues. I have a place for all the addictions. I have a place for all my sin. I can cast it all on Jesus because he cares for me. We need the truth of Jesus. But secondly, we need a heart transformed by Jesus. Why? Because a heart transformed by Jesus understands that God pursues sinners. Look again at verses 37 through 39. It says, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? 
And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all those who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Now, if there's any question that access to the kingdom of God, that entrance into the kingdom of God comes by way of merit, Peter slams the door shut. You see what he says here? He says, look, you, uh, your sweet, cute, little innocent babies, um, and all those scumbags that you think are so evil and too far gone that God can never love them, guess what? You're all in the same boat. You're all far off, and you need Jesus. It doesn't matter how much good you think you've done. It doesn't matter how religious and pious you are. It doesn't matter what socioeconomic class that you're in. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you are. What matters is that our God has made a promise of undeserved grace and mercy to someone like you. And that's humbling. It's so humbling. But here's what it also does. It helps relieve us from this burden that we often feel that we have to pretend like we have it all together. We can be freed from that because we don't have it all together. We're messy people. We're frail people. There was a a Scottish pastor who spent about 40, 50 years at this one church in a little town in Scotland named William Steele. And he uh, was known for writing weekly letters to his congregants. And one letter he wrote in the 50s said this, that we can often help others by parting the curtains of mystery that hide ourselves and letting them see that we too are frail creatures subject to common temptations. As people who are tempted to sin and often fail uh, in, in those struggles, I want you to hear Peter's encouragement from verse 38 again. Peter says, repent for the forgiveness of your sins. Or another way to translate that is repent into the forgiveness of your sins. It's not a one-time forgiveness that Peter is is thinking about here. He says that when, when Jesus calls you to a life of faith and repentance in him, that you enter into a relationship where you will always have access to forgiveness from the Lord. That it doesn't matter what you have done or what you have thought or what you have said, that you can always come back and find mercy, to find that forgiveness from the hand of Jesus because he loves you. There's a scene in one of the Rocky movies. I'm not sure which of the five it's in, um, but uh, Rocky Balboa has this trainer named Mickey. Uh, and Mickey is sparring with Rocky in the ring, and, and Mickey stops, and he says, Rock, I've got a gift for you. And he takes this necklace that has a little angel on it, and he puts it around Rocky's neck. And he says, Rock, I want to tell you something. If you're ever hurt and you feel like you're going down, this little angel's going to whisper, get up, get up, because Mickey loves you. Mickey loves you. Until the day that we die, we are going to be facing uh, temptation. We're going to be facing uh, sin. And it's going to be a struggle. Uh, 
and that's why Peter says in verse 40, he exhorts us, guard yourselves, keep yourselves safe from this crooked generation because it's something we deal with on a daily basis. And by God's grace, we will, we will get through it. But look, when we are tempted and when we sin and we feel like we're falling down, we feel like we're going down, the gospel whispers to us, get up, get up, because Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. God is never done with you. You have never gone too far. You're never too far off for Jesus because the character of God is one where his steadfast love endures forever. But here is what is neat about this heart that is transformed, is that a heart that's transformed by Jesus is always coming back to the cross, understanding that there but for the grace of God go I, that we are people as Christians who are outliving the in-living Christ within us. And so if, if the promise is for someone like me, who's as messed up as I am, who is as far off as I am, that means that I can also extend that grace that I have received to other people who are also far off. We need the truth of Jesus. We need a heart transformed by Jesus. And thirdly and lastly, we need the church of Jesus. Why? The church reminds us that we belong to God. Relational psychologists have done a lot of work over the years related to this sense of belonging. They've said how um, mutual empathy that results in um, uh, mutual empowerment uh, in this joining together in a shared experience, it results in this great fruit of relational health. And, and that's uh, true of teams and civic organizations and CrossFit gyms. But the church isn't any of those things, right? The church is something totally different. Look at how, in our very first verse, in, in, in verse 29, how Peter uh, addresses the, the crowd. What does he say? He says, brothers, brothers. The church is a family. It's the family of God. Yet the Bible begins with a family that has an intimate, perfect relationship with God. And then sin enters the picture. There is rebellion uh, that creates this separation and isolation from God. There's this chasm that is impassable. But how does the Bible end? It ends with a family in intimate, perfect relationship with God. How does that happen? It's because the cross of Jesus has bridged that chasm that was once impassable because of sin, that there's no more separation, there's no more isolation. And our relationship with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ is an extension of our restored relationship with God. There's no more separation. There's no more isolation. There's no more loneliness. Psalm 68 says that, that God sets the isolated. He sets the lonely in families, and we desperately need to hear that as a culture, as a people, because we're so lonely. Uh, the stats are undeniable. Um, over 40% of Americans uh, say that they are lonely, which is up 20% since 1980. The majority of uh, women who are under the age of 30 who have children are single moms. Uh, suicide rates are at an all-time high. Uh, those that have been diagnosed as uh, clini clinically depressed uh, are... Um, those numbers are up 10 times that they were 50 years ago. 
Even the former Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy, uh, under President Obama, he said that the most common issue that he treated in patients wasn't heart disease or diabetes or stuff like that. It was loneliness. Loneliness. If you remember the story, a book was written about it and it was turned into a movie called Into the Wild. It's a story of this young man named Christopher McCandless who wanted to just sort of ditch society ditch friends, ditch family, go off and be free and live on his own and uh, do wild and crazy stuff. And so he did. He went off to the Alaskan wilderness, uh, and he experienced some wonderful, amazing things that he found there. But um, he took a journal with him, and in one entry he said, happiness is only real when shared. He realized that he needed people. And so he tries to, to make his way back home to his friends and family, but he never makes it. He gets trapped by the flow of a river, and they think he ate some poison berries, and he died. But before he did, he wrote one last entry into his journal. It was just two words, lonely, scared, lonely, scared. It was his loneliness that made him realize this is not the way it's supposed to be, that that I was created for belonging. See, sin corrupts, and one of the things that it corrupts is that it corrupts our sense of what really matters. That, that's why uh, John Calvin said that our hearts are idle factories, because we, we tend to pursue after these things that we think are going to fill us up and, and give us joy and, and true meaning and a sense of uh, purpose and completeness, but we're just putting those things in the place of what only God can give us. And we live in a culture uh, where idols compete for, at minimum, our attention and, at most, our deepest affections and commitments. And that is why it is so countercultural and so redemptive for Luke, in verse 42, to say that the church, that these followers of Jesus, were a devoted people. Look at what they were devoted to. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, they sat underneath the authority of God's word to learn the truth of Jesus, to learn the wisdom of Scripture, and to be transformed by it. They devoted themselves to the fellowship. In other words, the the body of Christ, the mission of the church. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. It was these these community meals, these family meals, uh, where people of all uh, ethnicities and social classes and political opinions got together as the family of believers. And these meals would always end with the celebration of the Lord's Supper. And then they devoted themselves to the prayers, which is most likely the singing of psalms. What happens when people repent and turn away from idols and devote themselves to God's word and the sacraments and each other and neighbors and singing and celebration? What do we see here in these last few verses? Fit community. There's closeness, presence, availability, vulnerability. We see generosity. Mercy, joy, gladness, love, favor with all peoples, all peoples of all shapes and sorts, rich and poor, black, white, red state, blue state, vax, anti-vax, mask, no mask, office people, parks and rec people. When we feel our need for Jesus and we follow him, Uh, The upside-downness of this world 
uh, and the crookedness that we see of this generation uh, in our governments and relationships and our hearts and minds, they start to turn right side up. So what? So what? One of the things that we learn from uh, the Gospels and the book of Acts is that Christians are sent people. That Jesus sends us out into the world to participate in his mission within his world uh, for the redemption of his creation. And that sounds like a really big task for us. That sounds like a big ask. But we can't forget how the kingdom of God grows. Jesus said it starts small, like a mustard seed, seemingly insignificant, and then it grows and grows and grows and gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, he ends this book in chapter 28 by saying that through the committed participation of the followers of Jesus, that the kingdom of God increased without hindrance. In other words, it was unstoppable. Unstoppable. One more story and then we're done. Um, Back in the late 80s, uh, my uh, dad was uh, 45 uh, years old, and he was uh, laid off from a, a local hospital here in Memphis. Um, and he decided, at the ripe old age of 45, to uh, pack up uh, his house and family and uh, move to Dallas, where he went to chiropractic school. Uh, and he graduated a few years later, second in his class. Uh, he opened up a practice in the Dallas area. Uh, in, a, in an area of town that was really booming, uh, and everything did boom except his business. Uh, he went into tremendous debt to open that. Um, uh, we were poor. We had to sell it. We had to move back to Tennessee. Um, and my, my dad was reflecting on this hard time in our life several years later uh, in a conversation with me, and, and he said, I, I just wonder if it was, if it was worth it all of the the pain and the struggle and uh, the fear and anxiety and the confusion and the disillusionment and the hurt and the financial ruin and the anger. Was it worth it? I said, Dad, if it was only for Jeff Pick, it was worth it. Jeff Pick was a man that my dad met in chiropractic school um, who he and his wife were they would be considered far off. They did not know Jesus. And through my dad's relationship with them, uh, Jeff and his wife became Christians. And their children became Christians. And now generation after generation after generation until the Lord Jesus returns are going to know him as Lord and Christ because my dad befriended a stranger. What's the point? The kingdom of God is unstoppable. It grows without hindrance when God's love and law and grace and mercy are lived out in ordinary life through ordinary relationships by ordinary people like us. And it doesn't grow because of us, but it grows and it's unstoppable because we have a real hope in a living and reigning Jesus who pursues real sinners like us and invites us into his family forever. Let that be an invitation to you this morning to to come to Jesus and to do life with him. Let's pray. 
Oh, Lord, you are so good to us. Um, We don't deserve it. Uh, Lord, that is the definition of the grace that you give to us. It's unmerited, undeserved favor. Uh, You are merciful. You show us forgiveness. uh, And we can keep coming back to you. Uh, Lord, uh, would we know you more today than we did yesterday, even on Christmas? Lord, would we know um, your favor Would we know your forgiveness? Would we know that we are part of your family because of the work of Jesus and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in us to draw you closer uh, to us, to draw us closer to you, and to make us look more uh, like our Savior? Lord, um, would you cause us as we enter into this new year, this later this week, uh, would you cause us to put a priority on becoming the kind of people that you designed us to be, Uh, people that are uh, those that repent, uh, those that are faithful to you, uh, those uh, that love God and love our neighbor. And we do it um, all because we love you, and we only love you because you love us. And we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen.